All right, let's open in our Bibles this morning to John chapter number 3. The Gospel of John and chapter number 3 this morning. And I appreciate everyone being here. Trust that the Lord will do in hearts that which would bring Him the most glory. You know, every bit of this is about glorifying the Lord. The reason you draw a breath is to bring glory to God. And uh, God does a lot to promote and provide our happiness. There's no question. But uh, the chief thing is not that. The chief thing is to bring glory to God. You say, well, who, who is he to ask such a thing? Well, he's God. He's God. John chapter number 3 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Let's read verse 3 once more, and then we'll pray. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You. What what an awe-inspiring thing it is that in this country we're gathering here under freedom, Lord, and under liberty to worship You for the preaching of Your Word. Lord, we didn't have to pass any checkpoints to get here. We didn't have to be searched to arrive at this place. Lord, we're not under fear of imprisonment for being in these seats today. God, I pray that we'd not take lightly the privilege and blessing that that is. But Lord, that in this place this morning, we'd come to meet with You and to have You meet with us. 
God, that we'd learn of you and that you'd do in our hearts that which would bring you glory and that which would change us eternally. Now, Lord, you know each and every person, each and every heart here. So, Father, I pray that you would do in our hearts that which we need most. Lord, there, there could be some here in need of salvation. You and you alone know that. But I pray you'd meet that need. Some here in need of encouragement, Lord. I pray you'd meet that need. Father, maybe some here that have been lifted in pride that need to be humbled that they might walk closer to you. I pray that you'd meet that need. But that in all things, it'd lift up your Son high and holy and that we'd give Him glory for what takes place. I love you, Lord. I don't love you how I ought to and I fail you daily. But Lord, I pray that you'd be patient, long-suffering with me and teach me day by day to love you more. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's not very many passages in the Word of God more familiar to us than John chapter number 3. Probably John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the entire Word of God. You can go all across this world and you'll find people that can quote to you John 3.16. But I think very rarely we look at the larger text and context of John chapter number 3. Who was Christ speaking to and what was He speaking about? Well, the Bible teaches us that a man named Nicodemus came and approached Jesus by night. We know some things about Nicodemus. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know a few things. We know that he was a Pharisee. We know that uh, he was part of that group uh, that was the ruling class here in uh, Israel, part of that uh, religious political system known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, He was a man of influence. He was a man of importance. We know that he was a man that would have been familiar with the things of God. Uh, We know that he was a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was a man of authority. People listened to what he said and did what he told them. Uh, We know that Nicodemus was a teacher in Israel. That's what Christ said about him. So here is a man that has a great familiarity with the Old Testament. And yet we find him approaching the Lord Jesus Christ in the night to ask Him some things about God and about Himself and about truth and about salvation. And I want us to notice a few things this morning. Very simply, I just want to preach to you for a little while on the new birth. Most uh, folks today, if they've not been in church, they've heard very little about the new birth, maybe aside from some smart aleck bumper stickers or uh, some charlatan TV preacher with a forked tongue uh, trying to gain your wallet. Most people know very little uh, about... Uh, John chapter 3, and about the new birth. And yet we find in these verses that we've read, the 21 verses that we've dealt with this morning, we find an exposition, and can I put it this way, an explanation of what the new birth is, why the new birth is needed, how the new birth takes place, what has been done so it can take place, and how to know if a person's been born again. Can I say to you this morning that the chief question in life is this, have you ever been born again? We find a necessity laid upon this issue by Christ, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But that's the chief question of life. Not if you're religious, because Nicodemus was a religious man. Not if you're a smart person. In fact, let me just give you a few things that we see about Nicodemus. Let me say first off that Nicodemus was an intelligent man. You can tell by the way that he approaches the Lord. He's courteous, he's intelligent, he's used to civilized company. And let me say it's not wrong to be intelligent. Uh, I think it's a good thing when you can gain knowledge. Uh, the Bible says this about knowledge, says that wisdom is the principal thing. And so with all thy gaining, gain wisdom. Knowledge is not a bad thing, but knowledge apart from wisdom puffeth up. 
Knowledge apart from wisdom uh, puts a wedge between us and the Lord. You say, what's the difference? Well, knowledge is just the sheer accumulation of facts and of understanding. But wisdom is the discernment to know how to use that knowledge and those facts. And so we find he was an intelligent man. There's nothing wrong with that. I think we all ought to try to be intelligent to the best of our ability. You hear uh, my old preacher used to give this analogy. If somebody walked up to him one day and uh, said, I, boy, I'm just so happy to be ignorant. Uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. I'm thankful to be ignorant. And he said, well, you've got a lot to th- be thankful for. Amen? I mean, I, you know, I know they say ignorance is bliss. Some folks live in a blizzard. I think we should be intelligent to the best of our ability. But we find that intelligence was not enough. To, for Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God. We see he was intelligent, but we see he was interested. Folks don't ask questions about things they're not interested in. He had a genuine, honest interest in the things of God. And yet we find that though he may have had an interest in the things of God, and in fact I'd go so far as to say that Nicodemus had probably more of an interest in the things of God than the average person that even sits on a church pew. I mean, this man is a Pharisee. His entire life is involved in uh, the teachings of the Old Testament. This is a man that would walk down the street with long robes, with phylacteries, portions of Scripture strapped to his forehead, strapped to his hand. This is a man that observed the strictest laws and ordinances to try to attain salvation in the eyes of God and righteousness in the eyes of the Almighty. This was a man that was interested in knowing the truth. We live in a world full of people, and I know we don't like to believe this. Everybody likes to say, well, preacher, we live in awful times. Can't win people to the Lord anymore. Listen, people are interested in salvation. A lot of folks don't know how to be saved, and that's how Nicodemus was. And we'll say something about that in a moment. But let me say this, that just to be interested is not to be saved. Just because you're interested, just because you're open, that doesn't mean that you're saved. Nicodemus was interested. He would have never come to Christ if he hadn't been interested. But we see something else. We see Nicodemus was an intimidated man. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, usually if I'm going to drop in on someone for a conversation, it's not the middle of the night as it was for Nicodemus. Isn't that what it says? Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, the same came to Jesus by night. He was intimidated by the religious ruling hierarchy in Israel. He understood what it might mean if he came and talked to this Jesus Christ fellow. Let me say, there's a lot of people that die and go to hell because they're scared of what other people are going to think of. They're scared of what it's going to mean for them. What's my spouse going to think if I get saved? What's my co-workers going to think if I get quote-unquote religion? What, what, What is my family going to think about me if I tell them that after all these years I've been wrong, I've been mistaken? and that Christ is the Son of God, and that God is real, and that salvation is by faith. What are they going to think about that? It's what Nicodemus was facing. He understood that it could be a life-changing thing for him to get saved. Let me say that, thank God, it is a life-changing thing. If we really saw the mess we were in, we'd want our life changed. So he was a man that was intimidated. But then notice, fourthly, Nicodemus was an ignorant man. You say, wait a minute, preacher, I I thought you just got through saying he's an intelligent man. He is an intelligent man. But just because we're intelligent about some things, that doesn't mean we're not ignorant about other things. That's what Christ says to him down in, uh, uh, let's see, verse number 10. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Let me say it's possible to be a bright and intelligent person, interested in religion, concerned about where you're going to go, and still die and go to hell if you don't know Jesus Christ. There were some things that he had right, but at the end of the day, he was ignorant about the things of the new birth. 
And so God shows mercy on him and reveals some things to him. Now, why does God call it a, a new birth? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And you'll actually find that that language is used all through the Word of God concerning things that God does uh, is likened unto a birth. But there's three things about a birth that I think are interesting that apply to, a salva- uh, to uh, the salvation of the sinner. Let me say that a birth is a distinct event. There's not a person in here that doesn't have a birthday. If you're drawing a breath, you have a birthday. There's never been a person born that didn't have a birthday. Uh, Your birthday, when when people say, what is your birthday? You you don't say, well, I think I was born at this time, but I might have been born at this time, or this might have happened in my life, or I don't really know. I've just always existed. No, a birth is a distinct event. A time and a place you can point to. For me, I about said December 1st, 1997. That was my new birth. But my birthday is September 11th, 1987. You didn't know that's what they're so upset about when they flew into the buildings was my birthday. September 11th, 1987. I've told people I was a national disaster long before that ever happened. That's my birthday. I know that was when I was born. That took place in my life. There's witnesses that can testify to that. My age, my, my growth is, I know it don't look like it, but, but is in accordance with, with that time period. It, it's a distinct thing. I know that it happened in my life. I wouldn't be breathing in front of you here today if I'd never been born. So it's a distinct event. But let me say it's a distinguishing event. And I'm trying to be very careful in how I say this because I don't want to, uh, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I understand that, that uh, a baby is a life before it's born and it's a life after it's born. I understand that. But let me say this, that after that baby is born, nothing's ever the same again. They cannot go back to how they were before. Now, that's not to imply that we can't, after we've been saved, sin and mess up, make mistakes. Of course we do. Uh, but that baby cannot go backwards. In fact, that's the very thing that Nicodemus says. says, how can a man be born the second time? Can he enter again into his mother's womb? And Christ says, no, you're misunderstanding the spiritual truths I'm conveying to you. But a birth is a distinguishing thing. It makes a change in an individual. And then I want you to notice that it is a definitive event. In other words, once a person is born, they're born. They, may be, they, they might die, but they never be unborn. It can never be taken away. You as a life, and I'm not saying a person can't die. You know that they can. But once you've been born, that's an event that has taken place that can never be undone. You are born and you'll stay born. Amen? You'll stay born. You all right? You with me this morning? You're born and you'll stay born. You can't be unborn after you've been born. You might die, but you can't be unborn. So we find some parallels drawn between these two truths. I think it's pretty evident that what Christ is speaking about here is salvation. Based upon verse number 3, he says, uh, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't be part of the family of God lest you're born into that family. It's not something that is uh, caused by our good works. It's not something that's caused by our church attendance. But there is a supernatural event that must take place in an individual's life to cause them to be part of the family of God. I want to give you five things this morning, and I just have divided this chapter thusly, that I see concerning the new birth. I want you to notice with me, look at verse number 3 again. Now, it's interesting how Nicodemus approaches Christ. He approaches him with a lot of politeness. And he goes to him and he sort of tips his hat to him and he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the things that thou doest except God be with him. And Christ does not even acknowledge that. Now let me say this, that at verse number 2, that's where a lot of people's religion begins and ends. 
A lot of people, the only relationship they have with God is a polite tip of the hat to Him, an acknowledgement that He is God, and that's about as far as it goes. They acknowledge that He's God. They acknowledge He's God in heaven. They acknowledge He has say over what takes place in the lives of human beings. But to actually know Him in a personal way is beyond the average individual. Their religion begins and ends there. That is the exceeding level of comfort that they are willing to go to is to acknowledge that there is a God and that He is involved in this world. And yet we find that Christ doesn't allow them to stay at that place. He says, okay, Christ, I know that you're a teacher come from God. I know God's in the heavens. I know God has stuff to do on the earth here. And I know that you're the means of Him doing those things. I acknowledge that. I'm aware of that. And Christ stops him there, and we see the mandate for the new birth. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, he goes on to say a few things here. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he begins by saying, under no uncertain terms, uh, that the only means of salvation is through the new birth. He does not say through baptism. He does not say through church attendance. He does not say through doing our best or trying to uh, act our best or trying to do good to other people. You'd be amazed how many people are trusting in their own wisdom to get them to heaven. And they won't say that. They won't say, oh yeah, I'm trusting in my own wisdom. I think I'm pretty smart. But let me tell you something, when when there's a problem and you're assuming that you'll be able to work it out, you're trusting in your own wisdom. You're trusting, if there, listen, if there's a problem, if you get sick and refuse to go to the doctor, you're assuming that you know how to treat it better than the doctor can. When you have a car that is uh, acting up and broken and uh, hitting and a missing and a doing things that you never even dreamed a car could do, and you refuse, even if you don't get it looked at, even if you do nothing about it, if you just drive it and won't take it to the mechanic, you're implying that you know more than the mechanic knows. You're trusting in your own wisdom that it'll work itself out or that you'll be able to work it out. Let me say that people are not born saved. They have to be born again to be saved. We're not born as saved individuals. It's not enough simply to say, well, I think I'm a good person. God doesn't, God never asks you to be a good person to get to heaven. Did you know that? Never once in your Bible does it say, please act good and behave and you'll get to go to heaven. But rather what Christ says here is you must be born again. A supernatural event must take place in your life. Why is that so? Well, he explains in verse number five. He says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. So that tells us something. I mean, listen, commentators have fussed and argued about this verse of Scripture uh, ever since John uh, pinned it down. I guess they will be until uh, they see John face to face and John tell them what the Lord was telling them about it. But I'm not going to give you their opinion. I'll give you my opinion. I believe what John's speaking about is the natural birth and the spiritual birth. Because that's the context of what's being presented. I know some commentators would say that the Spirit is a picture of the Word of God, or that the the water is a picture of the Word of God, and the the Spirit is a picture of the Spirit of God. If you want to believe that, that's fine. I do believe faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I do believe that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. But I don't think that's what Christ is talking about in John chapter 3. I believe what he's saying here, because Nicodemus has just said, Lord, that doesn't make any sense. I'm a full-grown man. At this time, it was even possible his mother was dead. He said, I can't enter into her womb and be born again. And Christ says, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. 
The same way that a natural birth got you here naturally, a spiritual birth will be needed to get you to heaven spiritually. Just as there's a natural birth, there's a spiritual birth. Just as naturally life had to be breathed into you, spiritually life has to be breathed into you. Some would say, well, why is that necessary? In verse number 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now, let me ask you something. Does flesh degrade? Does it corrupt? Does it fade away? I think that everybody would admit so. If you own a mirror in your house, and if you're uh, any older than 30 years old, or in my case, uh, 27, uh, then you'll look in that mirror sometimes and you'll recognize that uh, the person staring back at you is not the person that stared back at you 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, you, you heard in places that, I mean, they haven't even identified in biology books. You're, you get to a place in life where you go to bed and you put more yourself in the nightstand than you put in the bed. You're taking teeth out and you're taking hearing aids out and you're taking, and you're putting more yourself in the nightstand than you are in the bed. The flesh degrades, it corrupts, it fades away. And Christ says in the same way, uh, physically your body will fade away. But heaven's an eternal matter. So if we're to live in heaven, we must have an eternal birth. We must be born again. The Spirit has to be born again. He says this in verse 7, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And boy, let me say, that's the most important must in the entire Word of God. Ye must. Not ye should, not ye can, not ye might. Ye must be born again. There's no room for discussion about it. If we believe God, then there's no room for discussion about this. This is a necessity if we are to know the Lord. He says in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now let me pause there and say that we could spend three weeks preaching on the Holy Spirit from John chapter 3, verse 8. But I believe the context of what Christ is trying to tell Nicodemus is this. Nicodemus, is not something that you see, but rather it's something that moves you and changes you. This birth is not something that is perceptible to the visible eye. The effects of it might be, but it's an inward change and transformation that has to take place. Isn't that how the wind works? There's not a single person that's ever seen the wind. It's merely a power. It's merely a movement. You might see the leaves shaking on the trees, and all you're seeing is the result of the wind. You might see, and occasionally, especially this time of year, thunderstorms will come in, and you might see, and that powerful wind, that wind might be powerful enough to take a big old tree and bend it almost in half. But despite all that you're seeing, you're not seeing the wind. You're seeing the effects of it. And Christ is trying to get Nicodemus to think on a spiritual plane. Trying to get him to understand, Nicodemus, this isn't a physical birth we're talking about. But this is a spiritual inward change that must take place in a person. And there will be an external change. There's no question. But it's not an external change. It's an internal change that affects an external change. So we see the mandate of the new birth. And then Nicodemus asked something very interesting. In fact, this is a question I think most people ask today. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Now stop and think about what he's saying. There's a context to this. Look at what Christ answers. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? We see not only the mandate of the new birth, but we see the mystery of the new birth. And what is Nicodemus asking but this? He's saying, if that's true, how come everybody doesn't know it? Isn't that really the question? You'll often hear people say it in this way. Which religion is right? Well, no religions are right, because it's not about religion. There's a God in heaven. There's only one God. 
Only one God. And I don't say that to say that all the other gods are the same God. I say that to say that there is only one God, and that God is the only God. There's only one God in heaven. Uh, I understand He's a trinity, but He's still one God. And there's only one that's the only begotten Son of God, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. People will ask, how could this be? Or I'll hear them say it this way. How could it be so simple? I had somebody ask me that just the other day. Is it really that simple? Well, understand that just because something's simple, that doesn't make it easy or comfortable. Some would say, if it's so simple, how come everybody doesn't get saved? Well, because though it is simple, putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did on Calvary to save you, uh, to do that, you have to be willing to quit depending on yourself. And that's a very difficult thing for most people to do. You have to admit and acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of Christ's salvation. You have to admit and acknowledge that you can't do it your own way and you can't do it yourself and what you've done in your life is not good enough. It takes His righteousness, not your righteousness. Your righteousness is not sufficient. And so it's a difficult thing. But we see in this passage that Christ answers in this way. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and we testify that we have seen. Now, when he says we, he's speaking of himself, but he's also speaking of the disciples. And I think in a broader sense, he's speaking of anybody that's ever spoke for the Lord. And he's saying the thing that we speak, we know firsthand. You're not lacking testimony or witnesses. And let me say this, that if uh, if Christianity was tried in a court of law, uh, it would pass in a heartbeat. You see, it takes how many people to condemn a man to death? Just one. Just one. And yet in this room, we have an entire room full of people that would testify to the reality of biblical Christianity and the new birth. You're not lacking people to tell you that the new birth is real. What's the issue? Look what Christ says. Verse number 10, "...and ye receive not our witness." The reason that, that people reject Christ is not because there's a lack of witnesses, not because there's a lack of examples of God changing the lives of individuals, but in a distinct and personal choice of the will, they choose to reject the testimony of God. They make that choice. He's going to explain why later on in the passage, but he, he moves away from that and merely says this. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Christ says, because people choose for them to be that way. People have often said, well, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Well, I'd propose to you that a loving God did everything that was possible to keep men out of hell. I'd propose to you that a loving God bankrupted the, the halls of glory and gave His only begotten Son that was sinless and perfect and in absolute perfection to be made sin for you and I to die in our place, not just to bear our sin, but to become our sin, to be spit upon, to be cursed at, to have His beard plucked out, uh, to be mocked and scorned and made fun of and stripped naked and beaten and nailed to a ragged cross for your sins and my sins. I, I sort of get a little upset when people say that about God. Because the God that I know did everything He could to keep you out of hell. But you have a choice in it. You have a choice in it. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. About God and God's will and priorities. And God has a will about Him. God's not willing that any should perish. But God also has priorities. And God's not going to infringe upon your free will to exercise His desire in your life. God wants you to be saved. God's willing for you to be saved. But the question is, are you willing to be saved? 
He says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, what's he saying there? He's saying this. I gave you an earthly analogy, and you wouldn't believe it. Because it was contrary to your experience, you rejected it and would not accept it. Though it's not contrary to the experience of many that are around here. We have witnesses, we have testimonies, but because it was something that you've never experienced, you refused to act upon faith and believe what I've told you. So how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying this, it's sort of like what he says in the next chapter to the woman by the uh, well in Samaria, uh, Jacob's well. Uh, she, she basically says this, she says, well, you know, the Jews worship in, in Jerusalem and we worship in this mountain. Where do you think we ought to worship? And Christ said this, you know not what you worship says, they that worship God, or that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. You know what she wanted to do? She wanted to have a theological discussion on a higher plane. And Christ says, you're spiritually dead. You can't have a, a uh, spiritual conversation with a spiritually dead person. Could I put it this way? First things first. First things first. Nicodemus says, Lord, I want you to expound the great truths of heaven. And Christ says, Nicodemus, you've never been born again. I can't explain to a dead man things about living life. So you must be born again before you can know those things. Look at verse number 13. We see not only the mystery of the new birth, but we see the means of the new birth. How does the new birth take place? Now, we, uh, most people learn at a fairly young age how a physical birth takes place, the components that are necessary. And Christ begins to give the components of the new. How can a new birth take place? Well, notice what he says in verse 13. He says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Let me pause there. Can I pause there and just make a statement? Listen, if you want to find out something about God's heaven, you're going to have to find out about it from God. That's the only way. Well, listen, we go to, we go to people that, that would, would plainly tell you that they hate God and everything about Him to find out things about God. Now, is that the way to do it? If I was to tell you, I, listen, I want you to get to know me, so I'm going to let my worst enemy come and talk to you. No, if you wanted to get to know me and weren't able to uh, speak audibly to me, you'd want to find somebody that knows me personally and find out truth from them. Christ says all these people with all of their theories, with all their theology, they've never ascended up into heaven. But he says the Son of Man, the Son of God has. He's descended down to the earth. Verse number 14 says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There we have another must, don't we? You must be born again, but the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, the only way we could be born again was for Christ to die in our place. Do you understand what took place at Calvary? Christ died in our place. That was a death sentence that you and I deserve to pay. It should have been us hanging upon that cross. Our flesh deserved to die upon a rugged cross for our sins. You say, well, I'm not a bad person. I didn't say you were a bad person. I said you were a sinner. You say, well, what does it mean to be a sinner? It means if you sin, you're a sinner. And you sin because you're a sinner. It doesn't take much. Folks say, well, you know, I, 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 I'm not a thief. You say, have you ever stolen anything? Well, maybe. Then you're a thief. You may not be a very good thief. You may not be a very prolific thief. But if you've stolen anything, you're a thief. Uh, we wouldn't do that with murder, would we? What if somebody said, are you a murderer? And you say, well, I just murdered one person. That wouldn't fly, would it? It doesn't fly with other sins either. To commit one sin, 
is proof that you are a sinner. It doesn't make you a sinner. It's proof you are a sinner. You're born that way. I'm born that way. Every single one of us that are born in this world, we're born sinners. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, speaking of Adam, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, in that all of sin. The very fact that we die one day is proof that we're a sinner. You say, what about Christ? He died. He died after He was made sin for you and I. If He hadn't become our sin, He could not have died. Because sin, when it is finished, the Bible says, bringeth forth death. So He died there, and that's where we were supposed to die. But because He died in our place, if we're willing to accept what He did as the means of our salvation, then we can be born again. I know we've seen the bumper stickers say, born right the first time. Boy, it's cute. I mean, it's cute. It will not be so cute at the great white throne judgment of God. Because it's in direct contradiction with what the Word of God teaches. I'm not mad. I'm not fussing. It breaks my heart to see people in such open rebellion against the truth of the Word of God. Because we weren't born right the first time. We were born sinners. Then we see not only the means of the new birth, but I want you to notice what he says. We see the mechanics of the new birth. Look what it says in verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it's echoed again in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse number 18, it's echoed again, he that believeth on him is not condemned. The only means to be born again is to believe, to put your faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. Could it be that simple, preacher? Well, that's what Nicodemus asked. But it is that simple. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm not against good works. I think you ought to do good works. And certainly, if you get born again, you will do good works. It'll change your life. But those good works are not the means or the mechanics of salvation. Because let me ask you this, how many, how many good works is enough? We've offended a holy God. We owe a sin debt bigger than we could ever fathom. How, listen, how many bowls of soup would you have to pass out? How many dollars would you have to give to charity? How many church services would you have to attend? What would you have to do if doing was enough? But doing is not enough. The Bible says the only way is by faith. By faith. We've got to put our trust in Him. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means to no longer trust in ourselves, but to lean effectually upon Him and His person to save us from our sins. In other words, when a person is depending on anything else, they're not depending on Christ. But to cease depending on everything else, to say, I am not going to depend on my membership or my baptism or my good works or my standing in the community, but rather I'm going to come and approach God as He's asked me to. And how has He asked me to? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To come to the Lord and ask forgiveness of your sins has to be born again, is to trust that what He said you need to do is what you need to do. To come and approach Him in the way He's asked you to that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it is everlasting life. The mechanics of the new birth, just as with the natural birth, is that once someone's been born, they cannot be unborn. It's impossible. Once you've been saved, you cannot be unsaved. 
You may not live for the Lord. You may mess up. You may make mistakes. You may live a life so rotten and so reprobate that God takes you out of this world rather than letting you live in the sin and misery of this world and bring shame to His name. But you mark her down, friend, that once you've been born, you cannot be unborn. Once you've been saved, you cannot be unsaved. It's out of your hands and in the hands of an almighty God. Some would say, oh, but preacher, what if I take myself out of His hand? Well, that's pretty good. I like that, except Isaiah already dealt with that. Isaiah said this, that God measured the universe in the span of His hand as vast as the east is from the west. You can try to run from the salvation of God, but if you've been saved, friend, you better get started now because there isn't enough time in a thousand lifetimes to make your way out of the omnipotent, almighty, gracious hand of God. If you've been saved, you can't be unsaved. He does, the only kind of life He gives is eternal life. It's the only kind of life He has. Is eternal life. So we see the mechanics of the new birth. And finally, I just want to say a quick word about these last few verses. I want to say a word about the marks of the new birth. Is there a difference in a baby between before it's born and after it's born? Well, it's a life before it's born. It's a life after it's born. It's got a soul before it's born. It's got a soul after it's born. Let me say that uh, just because you are spiritually dead, that doesn't mean you're not physically alive. You are physically alive even though you're spiritually dead. Let me say that you've got a soul before you get saved and you've got a soul after you get saved. But what do we find? We find this, that when a baby is born, he enters into a brand new experience. Things are never seen the same way. Things are never heard the same way. Things are never felt the same way. It's not to say that he might not do things that hurt his physical well-being. He might do that. But his life never goes back to being what it was before. He's now a new creature in Christ Jesus. What does Christ say about that? Well, look at verse number 18. The Bible says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. Some would say, Well, preacher, I've never believed on him, but, but I, I think I'm a good person. Well, the Bible says, But he that believeth not is condemned already. I know this isn't what I'm about to preach, but let me just say this. We're not waiting to get to pearly gates where St. Peter's going to have a big set of scales and pile your good weights against your bad, uh, your good works against your bad works. If you've not been saved, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never been born again, you're condemned already. The wrath of God abides on you. You're condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You've cast off your only hope. You've cast off your only hope when you've rejected Jesus Christ. It says this, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, let's dissect that for a moment. It doesn't say that men love darkness rather than light so that their deeds could be evil. You see, men don't reject Christ so that they can live a sinful life. Men don't reject Christ so that they can be sinners. Men reject Christ because they are sinners. They love darkness rather than light because that's who they are. That's their nature. That was my nature before I got saved. Now, I was a 10-year-old boy when I got born again. I mean, I wasn't, I, I wasn't out running drugs up and down the East Coast, you know. I, I didn't spend nights in the drunk tank. I was a 10-year-old boy raised in a Christian home, raised in a Christian school. I had every opportunity, bless the Lord God Almighty, to be saved. I had every opportunity to grow up in a Christian home. But let me tell you something. I was headed to the same hell, and I had the same darkness within me uh, that the worst drug addict and that the worst murderer on death row has within them. That same capacity for sin, that same darkness that dwelt inside, dwelt in a 10-year-old boy before he came to know Christ. Christ. That was within me. That's who I was. 
You say, well, why do some men do good, some men do bad? Well, some men indulge themselves in outward ways. Some men indulge themselves in inward ways. But all of us alike are born sinners. He says this, because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Why? Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Do you know why men are scared of this book? Men are scared of this book. The men that are scared of it would not tell you they're scared of it. They'd tell you they're too intelligent for this book. And yet this is a book that has boggled the minds of humanity ever since God put pen to paper. And yet they claim that they don't like it because they're intelligent. No, that's not it. You'll not find a beautiful example of literary mastery more than the Word of God. Why is it that they hate this book? Why is it that there have been campaigns to burn it? Why is it that there are campaigns to keep it out of public life? Why is that? The reason they hate it is because it shows humanity for what we are. Shows us for what we are. Shows us that we're sinners. Shows us that our best attempts are but filthy rags in the eyes of God. Shows us who and what we are. And so they hate the light. Neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth the truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. You say, preacher, what are the marks of the new birth? The marks of the new birth is the way that we treat light. You say, preacher, do you mean light, physical light? No. Christ said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. If Christ is the light of the world, then here's the question I would have. Do you have a relationship with the light of the world? Those that do truth come unto the light, that their deeds might be made manifest. They're not afraid of the light of the world. Let me say, there's times when I'm not living for the Lord, and I don't look forward to the conversations me and Him have to have. I understand that. But by and large, my life's the, the... In fact, I'd say not just by and large, I'd say in totality. My life is the better for knowing Jesus Christ. And I have a relationship with Him. It, it, on my part, I fail a lot. And it's not what it ought to be. In fact, it's, it's never what it ought to be on my part. But He's faithful every day. And I love Him. And I do want to live for Him. And I mess up often and all the time. But I love the light. I love the light. Not because I always do what's right. But because of what the light has done in my life and for me. Because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life and for me. So here's the marks of the new birth. Do you have a relationship with a heavenly Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ? A family is measured more than just by genetics. A family is measured by relationship. You may have been part of a family growing up that you had stepbrothers or stepsisters or a stepfather. You know that family is measured more than just by genetics. Well, the family of God is not measured merely by cold mechanics. But by this question, do we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? Not just do you know of Him, but do you know Him? Have you met Him personally? And is there a timing point to it? You can say, preacher, you, listen, you don't have to know the, the time of day. You don't have to know the date of the month. You don't even have to know the day of the week or the weather or what it looked like. But if there's not a place you can point to to say, preacher, I know that God saved me when I came to Him at this point in my life then I beg you today, before you leave this place, don't leave a walking dead man, walking, living in the flesh, but dead in the Spirit. But before it's eternally too late, come to Christ that you might be born again.